This program was brought to you by Eat on North. Eat on North is a casual restaurant where honest, uncomplicated food is served without pretension. Find Eat on North at hotelonnorth.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and I am sitting in New York City today um, on East Seventy-Eight. Uh, sorry, East Twenty-Eighth Street, with Tim and Nancy Cushman, who have just opened Oya, uh, fresh from Boston. Opened in February, and we're sitting in their new adjacent. Uh, oh, opened in June. Sorry, I was in Milan, um, uh, but we're sitting in an adjacent space to a restaurant they're going to open next f- February. 2016. So welcome, Nancy and Tim, to New York. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Well, you know, I think you have a very unique uh, story because you're married and you've opened some of the finest restaurants in the world and have quite a loyal uh, following. And opening a restaurant is hard. Running a restaurant that's successful year after year is harder, and being married is unimaginable. So, <laughs> so we, we have to find all your secrets in the next 45 minutes. And so I'm going to start with you, Nancy. Um, so tell us, you know, how did, how did you get here? Where did you grow up? And in the fifth grade, what did you, what did you want to be? Did you see this in your future? I did not see this in my future, although I love to eat and drink. So uh, that all fits in nicely right now. But I grew up outside of Chicago in a middle-class suburb called LaGrange and um, really had very little exposure to excellent food. My mom was a solid cook, but it was very meat and potatoes kind of upbringing being in the Midwest. And um, when I met Tim, uh, sorry, I do know your name. (laughs) (laughs) When I met Tim and um, we (laughs) we started dating and um, he just... Where was that? Where did you... So we met in Chicago. So Tim was working, um, he had just started his his own consulting business after working uh, with Let Us Entertain You for a number of years. And um, we met and I uh, was in a career in advertising. So I was not in the food industry at all. Although um, kind of in retrospect, a lot of my clients ended up being food-based clients so um but we met and uh tim really you know through going on multiple dates we went out for thai food and we went for chinese and we went for french and we italian and and really um food became an integral part of our relationship based on tim being a chef obviously but it really opened my palate and my exposure and and um one of our first dates was actually uh japanese and that was the first time i tried sake which i love and you're a master sake uh sommelier aren't you so yeah so we're so i've um have a sake certification um through uh the sake professional program through um john gauntner Mm -hmm. who is probably the world's leading foremost leading sake expert english speaking and japanese speaking uh and um so certified through him and i really when we first started dating and and i had sake i just fell in love with sake i was falling in love with tim at the same time apparently and did not have any clue that we'd end up sitting here and i'd be talking to you about having opened a japanese restaurant if you had told me that then i would say you're absolutely insane so you still didn't answer in the fifth grade what did you want to be in the in the fifth grade i really dreamed always of having an international job or role and and i dreamed of somehow working in the united nations Oh, okay so that came from even at 10 yeah wow yeah i was i i was i've always loved the idea of travel and other cultures and exposure to different things and so that young I really wanted to do something that that gave me exposure to other cultures and other people and and Tim I believe you grew up in Boston yes, yes right but you did travel the world and you know that's one part why don't you start off Boston even though you're a Red Sox fan I'm going to talk to you uh, but tell us how you left how you left and why you left Boston and then how did you go on your world journey 
Um, I grew up in a little town out in the suburbs of Boston called Millis, which is about 35 miles outside of Boston, and it's a, a nice, uh, quaint little rural town. Um, and growing up there, I originally wanted to be an Olympic skier. Um, I was uh, so that was in Jean Claude Keely was uh, one of my idols at that time, but all the Beatles were too. So, so th- that was. Uh, those were two uh, I just wanted to do either be in a band or or a ski um, and so i um, I actually kept my interest in um, in music and went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston and uh, that was in the 1970s and graduated in 1980 what what kind of music did you study or was it a general music degree uh, no I studied actually performance which was guitar and I to get the degree I had to give a, a senior recital which was 45 minutes of classical music on a jazz guitar, and then you had to do uh, two or three song, jazz songs with a band. Um, so I gave my senior recital for that, and then I graduated, and then I moved to Los Wait, what were the pieces of music you played? Wow, that was a while ago. I did um, the jazz things. I did Villalobos, who's like a um, South a Brazilian a guitarist. Um, uh, he wrote The Girl from Impanema. Oh. Um, that, uh, and I did a couple songs by him. I did some Bach. I like uh, Bach a lot. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I can remember the other ones. Uh, Debussy, I did uh, one of those. Um, for the jazz songs, I did Stella by Starlight, and that was with the band. Um, and uh, what was another one? I, honestly, I, I, it's, it was so long ago. I um, uh, but it shows a really diverse repertoire. Yes, yeah, it was. Uh, and then, but I, I'm a rock and roller, uh, so I moved to Los Angeles um, uh, shortly, maybe a month after I graduated. What year? That was in 1980, and I was in the spring of 1980 after I graduated from Berkeley, and. Uh, got a job in a restaurant because uh, I didn't have a car and I didn't have any money. Uh, it was a classic story and there was a restaurant three blocks away and uh, so I, uh, I, I wanted to get a job in a ski store but I needed a car to do that and so I took the job in the restaurant um, and uh, here I am today but it, I mean it's, I, I got a great experience in Los Angeles. I was there for about seven years. Um, one of my biggest influences was Michael Roberts, uh, who is a chef at Trump's, and yeah, not, not related to Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, Roy Yamaguchi, I worked with as a sous chef, uh, and he that was real kind of California Japanese. Um, and uh, and there was another chef I the first chef I ever worked with actually was very influential. He kind of kicked me out of the the nest after uh, I'd only worked with him for about a year and a half, and he had told me about Trump's in West Hollywood that was looking for cooks and he um, I maybe saw my talent and he just said you know you should go apply there is that Robert Bell Robert Bell uh, was his name but he still has restaurants uh, in the South Bay area of uh, um, California Southern California mm-hmm. um, so I was in LA for seven years and that was my first exposure to Japanese were you were you playing music at this time well I did audition when I first got there and then on Sundays there were the there was um, the uh, there was like a kind of a jazz jam every Sunday at, a, at this church, and uh, there would be all these jazz musicians that were had been traveling with other bands, and it was just kind of if you showed up, you could sit in and play. So I was doing that. Um, I did do I did go on an audition for. Well, I, I never auditioned for. I took a tape to her. She was one of the. Uh, there was this band called the Runaways. It was this all-girl band in the um, '60s that uh, I, they all came out of Cambridge. Uh, Joan Jett was in that band, um, and uh, there was another the big name that's still around that was in there. But anyway, so she. This was right in 1980, and she wanted what she wanted to do was put a band together and do videos, and it was right before MTV came out. Um, and so, and in a funny way, she wanted to go on tour in Japan first, and then come back and, and do videos because she thought that that was going to be a big thing. Um, so that never ended up panning out, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, so I was auditioning, and it, it took me about probably a year and a half of working in restaurants uh, before I decided that I might make the change over to uh, to restaurants from music. Um, wait, wait, let me stop there, because Nancy, you're a singer, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, yes, sort of. I, I mean, I but wouldn't... Music, but you love music. We do. And you share, yeah. you yes. share that. 
there's so many chefs that are wannabe rock and rollers, from Andrew Carmelini to Tom Colicchio. I don't know if you've ever seen them in bands. Uh, I don't know if they do them anymore. Right, okay, yeah. And, they, and so what is it about a mind of a chef and music or a mind of a musician to be seduced by food? Well, I think... I think creatively, uh, centrally, it, uh, they both appeal to more than just one sense. Um, uh, where music, there's you know, you you can touch the instrument, you can hear it, you can see the musician playing. Um, same thing with food. Uh, you know, you can touch the food, you can see it, you can hear it. So I think there's a lot of uh, senses that are attached, but also when you layer flavors, it's like building a chord. So it's like harmony and different chords. Like a major chord has a nice uh, kind of natural, comfortable sound, and uh, like a, a seventh chord has a lot of dissonance. So if you were using vinegar or something like that in a dish, or lemon juice, you know, it's kind of tart and uh, edgy. Tell uh, me what an E flat is. E, e flat. Well, E flat is would be an E flat. No, I mean there's a lot of E flat. Is, food. What, what oh, food, food, oh e, e flat. Well, E. Well, E flat is a note. So. Yeah. It would have to be how you use the E flat um, in harmony, um, but if you, I mean, if you just took, let me think. That's a good question. So it would be a side note. <clears throat> it could be, but it also could be. Um, I think it would have to be used with another note in order to put it into some context. Um, so if you just, so if, if you just tasted salt, you know, you would know it was salty, and if, if you heard an E flat, you could say. That's an E flat, but if you put salt on a tomato, then it enhances the flavor of the tomato. So I think in the same way, if you put a C note with an E flat, then all of a sudden you have a minor uh, interval, so now you have more dimension. So that's kind of like building flavor in the same way. Fantastic, really. That, that's the best explanation I have ever heard of the, of the marrying of those two you know, crafts, arts. Um, so... When you were in the fifth grade, what did you want to be? Uh, I, I did want to be an Olympic skier. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. Or, or, or a professor. Dorothy, listen. <laughs> no, no I, but also, I, I mean, I loved sports growing up. I loved the outdoors, um, and I grew up uh, outdoors a lot, um, and right on a river. So I, I wanted to be a pro basketball player. Um, excuse me for a second. So you're athletic as well. You 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 know it's the whole body experience. Um, yes, actually, in high school, I was captain of my football, basketball, and baseball teams, and I could have gone and played. Uh, uh, had uh, scholarships offered. New York University offered me a basketball scholarship. I got um, Colby College in Maine offered me a three sports scholarship. Uh, Tufts, I could have played football at. So so I had, but I didn't want to go in that direction because. Uh, uh, I still wanted to be one of the Beatles instead. <laughs> <laughs> Who didn't? <laughs> Who still wants to be a rock star? Don't let him fool you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it is possible. You do have a band. We have yeah. a band. Yeah. yeah, we do have a band. Um, we change the name every time we play out. Uh, we, we actually will be playing because we just opened a restaurant, another restaurant in Boston called Hojoko. Um, and it's a, an izakaya. It's a Japanese pub. And it's, uh, it's just... Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. We opened that about uh, six months ago, um, and it's it's, in an, it's right next to Fenway Park, and it's in an old Howard Johnson's Motor Inn, oh, and, and and yeah. it's called the and the owner the person that bought it redid the hotel but kept the same footprint and called it the Verb, uh, which is as musical theme. So the the fit was perfect for us. So it's a rock and roll izakaya, and we just got our entertainment license. So we actually, are, our band is going to, we'll play there hopefully sometime in January or you know January February. What um, kind of music? We like uh, kind of a mix, but mostly kind of rock, rock and roll. We do a little Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix. Um, oh, I can see else? the greasy oh, slick here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try to do it a little bit of justice, but there's nothing like the original. You the, know? the last time we played. Yeah. We were going to do it as an opening party for Hojoko, but uh, we didn't get to open in time. But we had booked this band from Japan called Shonen Knife. It's this uh, three-piece all-girl heavy metal punk band from Japan, and so we we brought. They were going to play at the Middle East, which is a, a club in in Cambridge, Mass. And so we said, okay, we already have them booked. So we found a venue, and our band opened for them, and they played, and we did a private party for the neighborhood. And uh, so our band that night, what do we call ourselves? Uh, 
Drunk baby. Drunk baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so we're a little irreverent. Wait, but an explanation of that, sorry, uh, <laughs> is the logo for Hojoko, the new restaurant, is uh, like a samurai, but it looks a little bit like a baby and it's holding a sake bottle. So oh, we kind of just lovingly, re- we lovingly refer to it as the drunk baby logo. Totally politically incorrect. Sorry for everybody that we're offending. <laughs> so, so Hojoko is irreverent. Um, yeah. And it's, it's really, it's an everyday place where Oya is um, much more expensive and exclusive. Uh, the Hojoko is an everyday fun to uh, hang out. We have a great bar program there. We have a uh, charcoal grill, so we're doing uh, not just yakitori, but uh, charcoal grilling. So this Yankee fan, you have to tell me, is, it's in Fenway. Is that near the baseball stadium? Right right next to Fenway Park. It's uh, literally a five-minute walk. Oh, great. So yes. the next time we're up there, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know where I'm going. Okay, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back. I'm Brian Alberg, and I'm the executive chef at Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. Eat on North in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts is a casual restaurant where good, honest, uncomplicated food is served to our guests. Our restaurant is part of the hotel called Hotel on North, the newly opened boutique hotel in downtown Pittsfield. We source local ingredients from our neighboring farms and offer an all-day dining menu of flavorful American cuisine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and on weekends we serve brunch. Our oyster bar serves up delicious shellfish and oyster samplers until 11 p.m. Check out our menu at eatonnorth.com and follow us on Instagram. Okay, we're back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and I'm Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today of Oya from Boston, but now... O- has opened last June of 2015 in New York City uh, on East 28th Street. And next February, you're going to have a yet unnamed uh, restaurant uh, adjacent to it, actually in the same hotel. So um, we're just talking about the musical influences uh, on both your, and from both your backgrounds. But you, I mean, you're known for Japanese food. So where did this international perspective come from somebody from a Boston suburb or Chicago suburb? Um, It really just kind of happened. uh, When I moved to Los Angeles for the music business and started working in restaurants there, it just happened to be right at the beginning of, uh, I mean, other than Chez Panisse, which started in the early 70s, it was really kind of when the California scene was really starting to pick up. And uh, so I, I think I was in a, fortunately in the right place at the right time when that happened and got to work with a couple of chefs that real, I, I just saw this, um, the, the influence. You know, or, or that's how I learned, actually. That, that, was, that became the norm to me. And I had never worked in any restaurants and really didn't dine out much when I was younger because I, we didn't have a lot of money and didn't go out to dinner. Um, so it was the first exposure I had to restaurants, so I thought this was normal, like using, and back in the early 80s, we were using farm-to-table and, and all that. Uh, then everything was natural. Uh, when I worked with Roy Yamaguchi, was it not only the Japanese influence, but I, I was the only American in the kitchen. There was, was people from all over the world, so staff meals, uh, everything, a uh, lot, lot of Latino influence, uh, European-Asian influence. It was a real great mix of uh, cultures. And that's where I got the exposure to it, and it just became, first of all, it fascinated me, and then, uh, and then it just seemed natural to me. So then when I left L.A. seven years later and went to Chicago, um, it was, it, at that time, it was a little bit of a culture shock, uh, because it, the, even New York really hadn't, uh, wasn't aware of what was happening. How did you choose to go from L.A. to Chicago after seven years of working with great chefs? Why Chicago? I mean, and why not back to Boston or somewhere else? Um, Sometimes in your life, the opposite sex has an influence on what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hadn't met Nancy yet, but the woman that I met there was taking me to Nancy. So, so (laughs) Well said. Um, And at the time, I was in between jobs and... Um, I just randomly read the Los Angeles Times, and there was an ad for a chef at a um, at a, a Mexican Southwestern restaurant in Chicago. 
and I answered the ad and uh, and accepted the job. And uh, so I that I had that job, and the my girlfriend at the time uh, was from Chicago area, so we went there. And I had never been to Chicago, so I went sight unseen. So you went to the great Richard Melman's "Let Us Entertain You." Yes. So that's very different than working for a chef, you know, a chef-run restaurant, going to a corporate. What was that like? What were the what were the growing uh, aspects to that, and what were some of the things that were maybe more frustrating or challenging for you? Uh, those are actually very great questions because um, that's it, it, growth is the is the key word there, and I highly recommend any anyone that wants to own their own restaurant ever uh, to not only get the creative little. Uh, 40, 30, 50 seat restaurant experience, but to get a larger restaurant group experience and get experience um, in opening restaurants and also managing uh, people um, because that's a big part in managing a business. Uh, Is that why you went there? You, did you know that before you went there? No, actually, when I went there, I didn't, I didn't even, had never heard of Rich Melman. It was somebody else that I actually took the job with. And that that guy went out of business within a few months, which is not unheard of. And um, so that was a lesson learned right there. Um, I didn't do my research well enough. On, I didn't know enough, and I was young, and um, it, it wasn't it wasn't a, a shock to me. So I just asked people where should uh, where should I go, and they recommended Rich Melman. And so I I called called him up. I went in. I spoke with him. He actually called me back that day. Actually, it was that night at midnight, um, and 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 talked to him for an hour and he wanted me to come in the next day and cook for him so I did and then he offered me a job uh, that day and he does that with every chef uh, always first thing he does is have you cook and uh, then you may you may go on or you may not with him um, so that's why I got it was just kind of a random connection and then I really hit it off with him and uh, he asked me to just stay floating in the company and become one of the corporate chefs instead of going in and running one of just one restaurant so that that was that was a great exposure too. One of the first things I did um, was work on. He has a concept called Ed Bevix, and it's a, an American diner with a really fun twist. And turns out this restaurant group from Japan had seen the concept. No, actually, I went and opened the Ed Bevix in Beverly Hills. So I actually went back to California um, and helped that open that. When we were opening that, a restaurant group in Japan saw that concept and wanted to open one in Japan. So I became the liaison of, because uh, I knew, you know, uh, uh, qu- quite a bit of Japanese from there, and I knew the American diner. Um, so I or- organized and helped open the one in Japan. So that was my first trip to Japan in 1988 and opened up a restaurant in Osaka. And their restaurant group, the Japanese, are very... Um, giving and accommodating and they kept me on each time I went over there and set me up with an interpreter and, go, and I was able to go and stage in restaurants for like, well I would go like three days at a time or a week <clears throat> and uh, so I, I did a ton of stages and, uh, and just got a great exposure to uh, Japanese food way back then. At this time had you, Nancy, known much about <coughs> Japanese food or culture? Really nothing. I mean, really, our first, my first exposure to Japanese um, because of my Midwestern suburban upbringing. You know, we did not go out for sushi every night. So, uh, first exposure was really one of our first dates and having sake and sushi for the first time. And uh, but I knew nothing about it at all. But I just became totally enchanted with sake when I tried it for the first time. So, and then I started kind of reading everything I could about it, which was only a few Ameri- like English English books about sake, yeah, and enough. started taking sake notes, um, and then drank kept a journal, drank a lot, drank a lot of sake. <laughs> That's the that way. Was it. You know, if you're going to learn about wine, pull corks, you know. <laughs> and I, I think just to Tim talking about Rich Melman, I feel like we quote something from Rich Melman every other day of our lives. Um, I think Tim learned the most from him probably of anybody else I guess I you can speak to that but I think it's one of his greatest mentors is rich because of his um, teaching of obviously the appreciation for the creative side of things but also just the business and the human side of things and really understanding what makes people tick um, and also kind of taking a chef who's creative like a Tim who just came from California and it's farm it's you know making the specials every day which is great and challenging but 
putting that into a format of more structured environment and having organizational skills and planning skills and things that make you so that really make you successful long term in this business. Um, without that, I don't think Tim would even be where he is today. I don't think that we would have opened a restaurant together. I don't think oh yeah would have ever happened. Um, I think that 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 was such a pivotal part from. Tim's career that really set us up to do what we're doing now. So, so I want each of you to give me a Richard Millman quote. Okay, my favorite is a restaurant is like an airplane. So it gets a, a little bit off course. It's always a little off course. And so you're always making, like, you always have to pay attention and make these little adjustments along the way because no day is perfect. As great of a day as it is, there's always a little something that either went a little off course or a lot off course or you wish autopilot could be put in place every day, but you, it can't. You just can't. You, you have to be constantly vigilant, constantly paying attention to every detail, constantly making adjustments. Um, and, and that is just something you just accept that fact about restaurants. And that actually truly is what makes it fun for me. I came from a corporate environment where I'd have two weeks to work on a project here. Like Tim used to laugh at me about that. And he'd be like, ha, you think that's pressure? So, and now I understand what he meant because like everything you have split second, you know, seconds to make decisions and corrections and make people happy and put smiles on faces. And, you know, it's really, uh, so much more intense. It's like live theater every night. And your Richard Millman quote? Uh, there's so many. Um, I think one thing that always stood out in my mind, uh, it, it was kind of a quote, but it was more try to improve at least one thing every day. And, and it was, to put that in perspective, and you'd say, you know, at the end of the year, you've done 365 uh, improvements. So if in, it doesn't seem daunting when you just try to improve one thing every day. And it really adds up, and it's uh, and it makes a lot of sense just life in general, uh, and that's and actually answering your question about uh, shocking. When I first went to Chicago, it was shocking um, because I had come from this freewheeling, throwing it down, no recipes, uh, which I had a blast with, um, and I really learned how to cook. Uh, but as Nancy was just saying, it took me probably a good year before I uh, started realizing the value of all the structure and infrastructure and. And uh, we used to have to do our specials the week before and cost them out and do all that, which now is brilliant, and you have to do that because it is business, bottom line. Um, but back then it was like, you know, I don't want to do that. It's like that's just such a, you know, it's, that's not fun. <laughs> you know, that's not fun, but it's so necessary um, to, you know, to be successful, I think, in, in restaurants. So, and, and just also adapting to the Midwest. You know, I grew up in the East Coast, and then I was in the West Coast, and the Midwest was very much different. But then I really grew to love Chicago and, um, and let, us, let us entertain you and, you know, and met Nancy. And so that was the highlight of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when, when, when did you both know it was time to open your own restaurant? That's a scary, you know, especially coming from the structure seeing other restaurants fail what was the what was the turning point what made you do it and how did you do it um it's uh actually the uh, i mean to put it in perspective nancy had never worked in restaurants so she didn't know whether it was whether it was the right time or not and i'm not saying and it's only just because she hadn't didn't have that perspective um I felt like it, the same thing, and in, in I think in finding the right person, or when do you ask them to marry you? It's like you just you uh, you don't do it when you first think you should, because you're not ready. Um, so it's and so I think waiting until you feel way overqualified is is the best way to do it. Is like get the experience um, that you need to have. O originally, we were going to do this as a, a pop. This was probably 15 years ago as a pop-up in our house. We were actually going to take a room in our house and build a little bar and just do it like underground, like once a month. Um, and uh, and then we realized we didn't want to take on the, all the legal obligations for that. So we took a few years looking around for a location, and if we found the right location, it was the right opportunity. We were going to do it, and so it almost never happened. Because um, we, first of all, we found a location we loved. But it was so hard negotiating um, the lease with it, it, it almost didn't happen. And then there weren't any liquor licenses available in Boston. And if they hadn't become available, we never would have opened it, and we probably would have never you know, uh, continued the, uh, to, to look for it. But I think it's if you think you're ready, you're not. 
um, is probably the clearest thing. The first time you think you're ready, yeah, okay, I've, I've opened a restaurant or um, I've you know been in a sous chef or something like that. You really need to know what it feels like um, to open restaurants and, and get that, and not only open them, but also to run them and manage them and um, go through all the trials and tribulations and uh, realize that you know you it's you need the creativity to do it, but you need that foundation underneath to support the creativity. When did you know that Oya made it? Uh, in Boston. Uh, That's school, a, school. I don't yeah. ever think it has. <laughs> yeah. I, I well, why is it so hard to get in? <laughs> you know, we're coming up on nine years and it still feels new, which is kind of fascinating to say and to think and to feel. But um, I, we, we haven't shared this story a lot, but we almost failed. So within the first year, it was such a slow, slow, slow build. There were nights where we were doing 14 covers and 12 covers and it's tumbleweed rolling down the aisles and eight months in. And we were pretty much selling off our stock or assets. Like we, we were probably two payrolls away from closing the door. Literally. We had borrowed money from friends um, didn't tap into my family because they were already so worried about us that I didn't want to worry my mother anymore. <laughs> uh, we had no investors either, so we did it ourselves. And so the bank was coming in and saying, how's it going, guys? And I would try to build these fancy Excel spreadsheets that kind of showed like a jagged <laughs> upward <laughs> trend, which maybe they were just impressed that I knew how to use Excel and that was enough. <laughs> but, um, but we were really close to closing. And we never let it on let on with our staff we never kind of showed any kind of fear because we really believed in what we were doing and i think that was so key we said you know what if we're gonna go down we're going down in a blaze of glory like let's just like do it to the end we never cut staff we never, never compromised. compromised anything yeah um we i think the biggest thing is to prepare to be successful so don't prepare to be slow prepare to be busy and so when you get busy you're ready and that's what we did, and we said it's either going to work or it's not. But you really need to prepare to be successful and prepare to be busy and don't, don't change your attitude. You can adjust on the fly, but we staffed ourselves properly. We also uh, prepared ourselves financially at least to hold ourselves off uh, you know, for what happened, um, and, and it ended up working out. So uh, the, I think, again, preparing to be successful and preparing to be busy – uh, and be ready to be busy, um, like don't cut staff and be prepared to not cut staff because all of a sudden, you know, you get people that start coming in and you're not ready yeah. and they're so, not trained. So your food was good from the beginning and your service was great. What what made it um, what made it full, the restaurant? Well, so two major, major things happened for us, which within were within four weeks of each other, which was just sent from the heavens i don't even know what happened but we it was about one year of being open and again two two payrolls of being closed and uh we received a call from uh food and wine magazine uh from dana cowan uh saying that tim has been is chosen as a best new chef and at age 55 i think was the oldest (laughs) of the best new chefs but he because of his nature of his background um never really had his own restaurant this is his first restaurant that he was in the kitchen being the full chef for and you know and so he uh was best new chef and then frank bruni from the new york times as we know um he came in and was doing a top 10 best new restaurants around the country series in the wednesday food section and we were part of the top 10 and then ended up being chosen as his number one best new restaurant outside of the United States. Well, that's no minor thing. I mean, that's, that is hard. Oh, yeah. the number one restaurant by the New York Times in the country. Yeah. Well, thank God you didn't close. If he came in three weeks later or three, three payrolls later. And oh. we, and to Tim's point of prepare to be busy, the phones we're ringing off the hook. The power of the New York Times is amazing. And I think we all know the power of the New York Times. But then to be on the receiving end of that was just incredible. And the phones were ringing on all three lines. Like we had enough. The voicemail was filling up. well, And we just stood in the restaurant at one point and looked at each other and just started laughing like <laughs> maniacally because we're, we're just like oh my god this is like it went from literally tumbleweeds to like that and but again 
at the core of it all, we always believed in what we were doing and we didn't change anything. Like we really kind of had baked this plan and we were really like thinking we were presenting our best product and our best service and our best way of being in a comfortable environment and welcoming. And um, so it was just, we were ready. And then that happened and thank God it happened. And I told Frank Bruni that if we ever had children, which we don't have children, but I would name, whether boy or girl, they would be named Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, on that note, we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Chef Story, and today my guests are Tim and Nancy Cushman from Oya in Boston and New York, and many other restaurants to come. And Roof on 27th Street, and the name of the hotel. Joko. Oh, no, the, yeah, in New York, Park South in New York, and Joko up at Fenway in Boston. I mean, it's a burgeoning empire. So, if it's a burgeoning empire, it means you're hiring lots of new people. And um, as Nancy referred to, uh, Tim, you've been around for a while in this business. So tell me, how, um, how is it? I, you know, one of the challenges today is getting good cooks. There is a shortage and, and wait staff. So what have you found? Who are the cooks today versus when you were starting out? And what are some of your observations? Well, the, the whole restaurant industry has evolved so much, um, and it will continue to evolve. The, if you look back, I would say in the past seven or eight years is really when chefs started opening up restaurants in numbers as opposed to a restaurateur hiring a chef. And uh, prior to that, a, a restaurateur owning the restaurant, would, it would, and chefs really now um, have started to open up their own restaurants. So if, to me, that's recent because I've been doing it for so many years. Um, but I, I, I love it because it's really kind of going back to what it was like when I started in Los Angeles where we were getting things like farm, little farmers would come to the back door and uh, some of the line cooks were even like growing you know, lettuces on little terraced things in their yards and um, the chef would say, go over to so-and-so's front yard and pick some nasturtium leaves and you know, would, that whole thing. So to see that all coming back and, and pickling and smoking and preserving and all that, uh, it's, it's great. It's exciting to me because now um, it's just, uh, there's a lot more awareness of it, and it's like kind of a team effort um, instead of just a few individuals uh, poking along. Um, but the, when back then, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword these days. There's a lot more experienced cooks uh, around, but there's also an enormous amount more restaurants. So back then, it was it was very challenging to find uh, cooks that were career cooks because you were still, as a cook, you know, you were you, you were still thought of you're just a cook um, kind of thing. Even though you're doing like this brilliant food, it was like you know you were a cook, and the idea of a chef was more of um, kind of an old school country club uh, meatball slinger, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, we won't tell Danielle uh, yeah. that, <laughs> uh, um, but. Uh, so, but I saw it evolve. I mean, and you see a lot of trends happen too, and uh, and that's one thing you have to be careful as a cook. And and I haven't opened so many restaurants. I've been involved in opening probably sixty different restaurants with Lettuce Entertain You. And then when I was consulting after that, and then also along with our own restaurants, um, and uh, you and I'd have to be open to you know what somebody would want, especially with Lettuce Entertain You or, or with my consulting of somebody said the Atkins diet, you know, is big, so, you know, let's cut back on pasta in the restaurant or come up with, you know, and I, I had to go through all those different phases of uh, different diets and 
um, trends and blah, blah, blah. So you have to realize it's like any trend that comes along, whether it's molecular or foraging, um, really take a hard look and, and don't just immediately jump on a bandwagon. Like, t- you know, there's always going to be something good that comes out of any trend. Um, but it, most of the time, it's a few things. It's not like a whole gigantic bundle of things, even though a chef might be hugely influential in their individual restaurant doing it. The application outside of that um, is, you know, isn't as great as the individual restaurant itself. But there are a lot of things to take out of all the trends, and, and I think you take those and then kind of make them your own, and that's really how food evolves. What is the criteria you look for in someone to hire in one of your restaurants? And then what do you do training for them? How do you, how do you cultivate them to be a part of your culture? Well, our most important rule, I can't say the word on the radio probably, but we have a no A whole <laughs> rule. <laughs> and in all seriousness, like this is a tough business. It is a very creative business. It's very talented. There's a lot of ego or can be in this business. And we really try to operate in a really ego-free environment and make it more of a team collaborative effort um, and really just try to bring on folks who are really interested and passionate about what they do, but also want to work really well with other people. And probably everybody would say that too. But I I think, you know, our teams are relatively small. um, And so we just really that importance of collaboration with front of house, heart of house, like every everybody, we try to just make sure everybody's working as a team and that we provide the proper tools and training for them to do it. And so it's training is kind of specific to whatever position, obviously. Um, but, uh, we but you're doing primarily Japanese food. Yeah. And so, and your wait staff, I mean, your cooking staff doesn't look particularly mm-hmm. Japanese. And so how many Americans come to you or other non-Japanese that know how to do your food? Or do you have to take them through a whole learning process? It's a mix of uh, both, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, most of our staff uh, are not American, but if they come in, again, I, I'd rather have somebody that's a, a great person and is uh, intelligent and ambitious um, and resourceful and, uh, and let them acclimate into how we do things. And uh, we always, before we hire somebody, have them come in and more or less in the kitchen audition with us because I, I can tell within 10 minutes or less than that, within a minute uh, just how they maneuver in the kitchen and how they just set themselves up uh, for anything that I might, may have assigned them exactly where they're at. Uh, you can see the organization. You can see, uh, I mean, you really have to be physical. It's like a ballet in the kitchen, and you really be able to, or it's just like being on a sports team. You have to be able to maneuver physically uh, within the confines. Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of an audition in a sense of having somebody come in and, uh, and uh, see where they're at before we actually hire them. Like, Mm-hmm. So, um, where uh, for your wait staff, for example? I mean, uh, this whole tipping, this new, you know, with minimum wage going up, and Danny Meyer's group coming out and saying they're going to put a, and I think Grant Ackes has been doing this, just one one price, maybe even doing it like a theater ticket where if somebody buys it and they can't, if they cancel three days in advance, you know, uh, it gets put on their tab. Where do you think that's going? Oh, gosh. If we could tell you the answer to that, we'd be geniuses right now, I think. I think um, the trend is going in that direction, and we haven't quite decided which way we're going to go with it at this point. Um, we're not changing anything for now, um, staying kind of traditional tipping. Um, but there is such an opportunity within this business to really kind of even things out, even the playing field, making sure everybody is making a, a really decent and good living to be able to pursue their passion and their career. Um, I did because I came from the corporate world and was in an HR role where I was seeing people's salaries on a daily basis. And then coming into the restaurant business, I actually couldn't believe the wages, quite frankly, of when you go to a restaurant that, that that's the wage. And, and it's 
amazing to me. I think, for instance, like the dishwasher is one of the most important people in the restaurant. If the dishwasher isn't there, you don't, you can't really perform. And so I, I just feel like everybody plays such an important role on the team that I think there's such an opportunity to figure out ways. I don't know if it's through the automatic gratuities or whatever it is that, that, that there are ways to kind of get to having parity parity and also (laughs) having people be able to to make a living doing what they're doing we've met so many chefs and cooks that had to get out of the business because they just couldn't afford to be in it and that crushes me because it's it's really uh if you have that passion and that enthusiasm for it and but the money part of it is a struggle then that you're you're you can't focus on what you're doing. So it's, uh, I think there's an opportunity there. I don't know where it's going to mm-hmm. net out, but I think in, in general, I think it'll get to a better place. And, and I think with the tipping, I think it fits right into any trend um, or opportunity uh, that happens in any industry, but in, in the restaurant industry where there will be parts of it that will be applicable. Because um, from what I understand, uh, uh, Danny Meyer has a very complex uh, system that he set up for kind of eliminating the, the tipping. I didn't read through the whole thing, but it, it actually was a very uh, complex uh, plan that was put into place. And I think it's not as simple as just let's just not, you know, let's just stop the tipping and, uh, and pay everybody X amount of money. I know there's a couple of restaurants in San Francisco that uh, switched over at the beginning of the year, and I read, I think it was a month or two ago, switched back because they lost all their servers. So I'm not, I don't think anyone's figured out the puzzle yet. Um, and, I, again, I think they'll, I agree because I, in the 80s, I was you know, making 285 an hour um, for a long time. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's a not hard... As a server, not, not as a <laughs> server. Yeah, as a server. Yeah, as a cook, as a prep cook. Um, and it was just scraping by, you know, for years. And uh, it's so to be successful because of the way the industry is right now, it's like you really have to just persevere um, and just keep believing and don't give up and, and uh, keep on moving. I did want to go back real quickly to uh, Rich Melman uh, thing, one, a huge thing that I learned from him about people and uh, how to retain good people is – don't think about you being successful. Think about making your staff successful and make them feel successful. So when you go in and you you want to tear it up in the kitchen and blah blah blah, that's great. But the the way you're going to be most successful is to make your the people that you surrounded yourself with successful because they will make every you know they will make the success happen. And the way they do that is to spend time with the people and pick people that uh, you know that you can develop and work with and are willing to. Um, be coached. I mean, it's a give and take thing. It's not just. It's not simple. They have to be also be willing to be coached and um, and guided and, and taken along for the ride. But it's uh, it, you need that relationship uh, to have uh, to make it work really for anybody. It's you can't do it by yourself. You need everybody. You need as many people as you can afford. <laughs> <laughs> that that is great. Well, we're getting to the end of the interview, which so he said. Is there anything exciting for you guys? I mean, you've got, you're opening all these restaurants. Anything else on the horizon that you can well, talk? Let's see. Well, we have the restaurant uh, opening another here in New York uh, at the end of February early March Um, and uh, we're also in February headed to Montreal. Chef Danielle has invited us, or Tim really not me, but I I tag along um, to go to Wasaki, I think Danielle will crack that open. That's a great plan Um, (laughs) So we're going to uh, Montreal and Lumiere for uh, Tim has been invited to go up there and do a dinner uh, up there and so we're excited about that and um, just continuing on. Oh, I had one last question, and it was probably the view. How intimidating is it to do Japanese, a Japanese restaurant when you're not Japanese? They are such a, a, a meticulous, specific uh, culture and cuisine, and you do it so extraordinarily well. How, I mean, how does that play on, you know, how do you get the confidence to do that? Um. I don't. Uh, it's probably a combination of uh, naivete and, and confidence and uh, and just uh, passion. Uh, people always say, you know, you're not Japanese, but you're doing uh, Japanese food or Japanese influenced food. Uh, and I'll say, I've had some of the best Italian and French food in Japan uh, with Japanese chefs. So I think it's really where your heart is. Um, 
But speaking to that, the Japanese culture, it's uh, there's so much to learn, and I always I always look at myself as a student, and and um, and that I've never arrived, and you can never think of it that way. And actually, that's the fun part of it because there's so much to learn. Um, I wish I could live forever to learn everything that there is to learn because it just keeps getting larger and larger. You know the uh, the uh, possibilities that happen. Uh, real quickly, one thing we, we a year ago we got invited to do a, a cooking competition uh, from this uh, Japanese television company, and they uh, contacted us and wanted me to do a, a contest, kind of an Iron Chef one-on-one contest with a, a Michelin-starred Japanese chef. So they came over to Boston uh, last fall and uh, and. So I, I was up, up to the challenge, and I had to, I'm not a I'm not a, um, uh, a sushi chef necessarily. I can do it well enough to develop ideas, but I'm not um, I'm not a master sushi chef by any means, and I never claimed to be. I really set the restaurant up in a unique way, um, but I did have to kind of get my skills together to do this because it was I was going to be on television in Japan. So that was probably the uh, the most challenging moment for me as far as uh, having to um, uh, show myself, you know, what I can do or, or what I can't do. And I felt very comfortable with the point that I got to. I practiced every day for about three hours for two months um, to hone my skills, my nigiri and, you know, maki rolls. And um, and I, I just wanted to make sure I represented myself well and represented us well and didn't embarrass myself. <laughs> um, but I, I ended up having a lot of fun. And uh, he ended up, it was five judges. Uh, he won three to two. But I felt... Uh, you got two. I got two. <laughs> so so, so, so I, I felt great. And, and he's like this yeah. great... Uh, his name Iwa. Uh, he has a, a restaurant in right in Skiji area, and he's one one Michelin star. And he was a great guy. And actually, just the, uh, we you know really kind of got, became friends. And we spent a couple days. He came and ate at the restaurant first. I had to prepare food for him at the restaurant, and while it was being filmed. And then two days later was the contest, and uh, and that was an all day all day event. So that was a great experience, and it was uh, humbling. Um, at the same time, but again, I, uh, you can do it, and I got to the point where I, uh, I felt good about what I did, and even though I didn't win the, the experience, I felt like I won just from having the experience and exposure and, and meeting uh, him. He was a great chef, so uh, that, was, that was cool with me. Wow. On that high note, I'm going to say uh, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely wonderful interview. Thanks for sharing your day in this very, very busy period. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dorothy. Uh, thank you. It was great to have you and see you again, and uh, hope we'll speak with you soon. Can I get a reservation? <laughs> okay, thanks. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.